Hello? Anybody home? Today, I want you to open your mind. I've almost come to the conclusion that the story is so damning that the mass of people can't deal with it. We are in process of developing a whole series of techniques to get people actually to love their servitude. We face a hostile ideology, global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose and insidious in method. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence. To change the minds and the attitudes and the beliefs of the people world, especially the United States, to bring about one world socialist totalitarian government. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. It has patterned itself after every dictator who has ever planted a ripping imprint of boot on the pages of history since the beginning of time. If you can get people to consent to the state of affairs in which they are living, then you have a much more easily controllable society than you would if you were relying wholly on clubs and firing squads and concentration camps. Tools of conquest do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices to be found only in the minds of men. The military-industrial complex not only controls our government, but they control our culture. As you connect the dots between different people, organizations, places, religions, history, suddenly the picture starts to form. If you don't connect the dots, it's just a mass of what's all this about. The kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful to make this life a wonderful adventure. Someone born in the United States is not more special than someone born in Mexico. Someone who is white is not more special than someone who is black. They're just vehicles for the consciousness to experience. Brutes have risen to power, but they lie. They do not fulfill their promise. They never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. They do not want your children to be educated. They do not want you to think too much. It was learned that the aliens had men and were then manipulating masses of people through secret societies, witchcraft, magic, the occult, and religion. They reach into our children in music, television, books. Prey on children's innocence. How can I disprove lies that are stamped with an official seal? So if you have the opportunity to stand next to one of these machines, it feels like an altar to an alien god. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. You can deny all the things I've seen, all the things I've discovered, but not for much longer, because too many others know what's happening out there. And no one, no government agency has jurisdiction over the truth. Any state, any entity, any ideology that fails to recognize the worth, the dignity, the rights of man, that state is obsolete. A case to be filed under M for Mankind in the Twilight Zone. It's about time some of you got acquainted with the real hard truth. I'm your host, Ryan Gable, and you are listening to the Secret Teachings radio broadcast right here 
five nights a week, Monday through Friday, on The Fringe FM. TheFringe.fm is the network website. Our website, www.thesecretteachings.info. And if you'd like to contact the broadcast directly, rdgable at yahoo.com. That's r-d-g-a-b-l-e at yahoo.com. Social media, only on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the secret teachings. I'm aware of the other platforms, but we've also been banned from the other platforms. So facebook.com forward slash the secret teachings. I was taking a drive over the weekend and I saw a new apocalyptic sign on the interstate. You know, one of those zombie apocalypse, World War Z-like signs. You know, expect to see like Brad Pitt running down the road or something with his family. And it was another one of these signs here in New York. I'm out in Bloomfield, New York now, outside of Rochester, finally. And the sign said, COVID-19 is still a threat, so wear a mask. And it seemed a little bit more implicating and almost threatening than the previous signs that said, stop the spread, stay home, which sounded more like a suggestion. You know, if you want to stop the spread, you can stay home. The new signs are like, COVID is still a threat. You must wear a mask. Do it. You know, basically, it's a Nike sign. Just do it. Just wear a mask. And after seeing that sign, kind of took me by surprise. I thought that they removed all these signs. And I get to my exit, and I stop at a red light, and I look over. You know, you look over when you're stopped at a light. And I see this big SUV and a woman inside the SUV who was looked very unhealthy, very overweight. And she's got a mask on with the windows down and nobody else in the car, which is something that all of us have probably seen recently. And so I turn away, you know, you're just looking around. I turn away and I turn back to her and she's taken the mask down to smoke a cigarette, which is another common thing that I've seen. People are worried about respiratory infection, quote unquote, but they're happy smoking cigarettes all day. So I started thinking as it's, you know, usually on my mind several times a week, this is the epitome of our social and cultural problems relating to health, healthcare, sociology, anthropology, economics, and a number of other things. I mean, you think about something like the Centers for Disease Control, regardless of what you think of the CDC and their recommendations, and that's all they are, recommendations pertaining to COVID-19, the CDC estimates based on statistics that about 40% of all the major leading causes of death from cancer and diabetes to heart problems could be simply avoided by you taking responsibility, changing your diet to include more nutritional food, as well as limiting smoking, alcohol consumption, and performing minor exercises. And that's not like a Coca-Cola recommendation where they say you're fat because you don't exercise enough. You can drink as many Cokes a day as you want. They're saying eat nutritional food. That's a big component. So in that respect, I agree with the CDC that that probably is a big reason why obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are exploding in the U.S. And in some cases, people are exploding, no, no pun intended. But you take personal responsibility. See, a lot more goes into that. But if nearly half of the deaths in the U.S. could be avoided, I mean, th these are like official statistics based strictly on personal decisions. I mean, there's obviously corporate influence and manipulation, propaganda, advertising, marketing. We really shouldn't have a need for the current health care debate because we could take care of it at the fork level. 
But we always want an authority and a specific kind of authority to tell us what to do. It's like the father figure. It's why the Pope puts his hand up to bless people. It's a father figure. The father is going to strike you down. It's an archetype. We want the authority figure to tell us what to believe, what to perceive as reality. And that authority figure is usually godlike in nature. People talk about things like free health care, but that starts with yourself, and it begins with learning before you act, before you eat. But there are some authorities that we still don't trust. We don't trust the authorities that don't have an official stamp of approval from an official agency or group. Anybody who doesn't have that stamp of approval, it doesn't matter how many letters you have next to your name. It doesn't matter how many hours, how many years of study and practice well, your credibility is dismissed. You're just a quack. You get, you get these guys like Dr. Faust, or you know, my friend Clyde Lewis calls him Dr. Strange Glove. I call him Dr. Who. This Fauci guy, he's perceived as an authority on the subject of COVID-19. And uh, even when other authorities at his level or higher, perceptually in the hierarchy, whether they're at the World Health Organization, the Surgeon General, or the CDC, or major hospitals, when they make statements contrary to this high priest, their credibility's dismissed as well. They don't know what they're talking about. You know, Doctor Who, he knows what he's talking about. He's an expert. You know, the whole subject of mask wearing, whether it should be done or it shouldn't be done, the specific circumstances of wearing a mask and all of this, it primarily stems from the authoritative insertions into our psyche by Fauchian ideology that the public unquestionably accepts as the word of God. And who could blame those people? You know, they, they were terrorized, and we still are terrorized by graphs and by charts that are printed from a computer that's all fraudulent. Millions of people supposedly are dying. I mean, hell, Joe Biden just said, what, a day or so ago, two days ago, that 120 million people died in the United States. I was I was stunned by that. That's like almost half the population dead from COVID. I didn't know 120 million people died. You know, that, that one guy on that one t television uh, was at CNN or something, and I'm not supporting a political party. I don't take part in that. But one guy was like, yeah, Trump's a dictator. He killed like 300 million Americans. I thought, wow. So there's only like 40 million of us left. I don't know where they just get these numbers. It's not like a faux pas either. They say it and then they back it up. But hundreds of millions of people are supposed to have died when it's like 110,000. And all this turns out to be fraudulent. We know the tests are fraudulent, etc. You know, it's really no different than the climate change argument. Falsified data, a lot of people, you know, participate in the fraud because it, they feel empowered, because they have, you know, some kind of authoritative directive. They feel like a hero. You see those signs, heroes live here, heroes work here, things like that. I'm essential. I'm better than you all psychological. It's all a mind game for the most part, as far as I see it anyway. But a lot of people have stopped listening and they've stopped paying attention to this. Uh, though a lot of people that have maybe stopped paying attention, and, and I know many of them, that they're still kind of afraid. So they'll still wear the mask and they'll still kind of play the game. You know, they know it's a fraudulent power grab, but maybe they think somewhere deep down, there's some reality to this. You know, you just, you can't be too safe, right? The subject of masks, for example, has become an extremely political subject where people think that if you don't wear a mask, you must be a Trump supporter. You must be anti-science. And some of you know that I had to contact a constitutional law group and begin the filing process of a formal complaint to the Department of Justice and OSHA 
about hazardous work conditions and because I have a doctor's note, because I have some problems breathing already. I've had heart issues since I was a kid. They've gotten better. All of that for a violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act and uh, also HIPAA. And uh, of, of course, you know, this caused backlash at my job because I dared to question the authority of, of Fauci and the governor of, of New York. Also, if you actually read those executive orders and policies and all that stuff, it's, it's, it's not like a, it's not mandatory. It's not enforceable. It's like it's a strongly worded recommendations uh, recommendation. And uh, you saw last week on the show, we talked about masquerading as heroes and victims. The dawn of the death mask Wednesday's show last week about how Florida, Orange County, Florida and then California, which includes the famous Orange County, California, both pass these ordinances and law executive order things. You can call them whatever you want, but they're all fraudulent and uh, they're unlawful. And they both literally in the paperwork allow for exemptions of every single person. It's like if you don't want to wear a mask, then you're exempt. It literally says that in the California one. So if you want to wear one, that's fine. But the reality is under the color of law, Section 242, Title 18 of U.S. Code, you cannot force someone to wear a mask that restricts oxygen absorption and and exhaling, even if it is a minor, you know, minor issue. You know, we've seen studies from JAMA and the British Medical Journal about the dangers of consistent mask wearing. However, these dangers are typically described as paranoia due to the fact that the mask is only a temporary measure. And you have to tell people, yeah, but if you wear it the whole day and you touch your face more often, based on the the theories of how you get sick, you touch your face more often, you don't wash the mask properly, properly, you don't apply it properly, you're actually, and I don't need scientific data to show me this, endangering yourself. You know, a couple days ago, Dr. Faust or, you know, Dr. Who was talking about how people don't believe in science, yet he provided no information whatsoever as per his social distancing guidelines or mask wearing demands, despite someone like myself, who maybe in the radio world, I'm a somebody, but outside of the radio world, just a 29 year old radio host with a studio and a walk in closet. And I can pull up mainline medical journals and reports that say the opposite of what Dr. Fauci is saying. And when you consider that mask wearing provides only the perception of safety based uh, on this mentality of protecting others, having some high moral standard for for protecting the public as an individual, it's totally erroneous, but it actually endangers you. And, And this reality parallels that of the ways in which we clean in order to protect ourselves from viruses and bacteria. What I mean by that is many of you know that I've also, because I've told this story, I've also acquired a contact dermatitis on my skin in the last couple of months. I speculated that it was because of the chemical being used and my part-time job. Long story short, turns out it was the chemical, and I was able to remove myself from that environment. I reduced the exposure, and the reaction magically went away like I waved a magic wand. I even talked to a My son's doctor, I don't go to the doctor myself, but I went to my son's doctor and he agreed with me. He said, yeah, it's it's the chemical. You don't need lotions and potions, to to quote uh, David Parker, who wrote the book, What Really Makes You Ill. So on further investigation, uh, you know, I looked into the chemical, one of the QAC, quaternary ammonium compounds, and the chemical that was being sprayed is alkyl dimethyl benzyl ammonium chloride. 
And so I just went and did some research. I found, again, mainline medical data, including the chemical company that manufactures it, their data sheet about safety pertaining to how poisonous and dangerous and toxic the chemical compound is. I mean, they say, for example, that if you get a drop on your skin, you need to run that little bit of skin under water for 20 minutes straight. If you get a drop on your clothes, you got to rip your clothes off like the Hulk. It doesn't actually say that, but it says take your clothes off immediately. The safety sheet says there's no reproductive hazards, says that on the sheet, but then I just did a quick internet search and pulled up mainline reports about reproductive problems on rodents who were exposed to QACs. And the company, Alpha Chemical, claims that uh, there's a proper way to use this chemical, they say, and it's kind of funny because, you know, it's, it's erroneous that there's a proper way to use an extremely toxic chemical, but even if there was a way, nobody's, nobody's doing that. The company, I read the paper, it says, spray this chemical, and uh, if you spray it, make sure you have ventilation. You know, open windows, you're outside. Otherwise, you need to put it on a rag with gloves, wipe things down once, and then throw the gloves out and dispose of the rag because it's that toxic. But no, 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 no. People are spraying, wiping, spraying, wiping, bare hands, inhaling it. They take their masks off for a second so they can get, get some fresh air while they clean in a store. This is the kind of chemical being sprayed at stores all over the nation. I'm not sure about Europe or Australia, but here in the U.S., it's all over the place. And see, even if we were to accept the Louis Pasteur germ theory, the, the, the chemical residue you know, that, that, that supposedly is going to kill the virus on contact with, with a single spray, the, the fact is they're spraying it over and over again, which, of course, supports the chemical company and the production of more chemicals. My point is... And the punchline is, before we bring our guest on here, Mount Sinai and New York University Medical School put together a professional report on quaternary ammonium compounds a few years ago. And they found that there were major effects such as contact dermatitis, skin rash. One of, I've also read the symptoms of COVID-19. I've read that. It's a skin rash. Along with mucous membrane irritation of the nose and eyes. So if you're coughing and sneezing and wheezing, These are also symptoms of COVID-19. And of course, the big reaction that we have to this QAC, this cleaning agent, is respiratory irritation. It says it right on the product, which is the primary symptom of COVID-19. It's respiratory, right? In other words, the chemical sprayed to kill the virus and the masks we wear to protect ourselves not only make us sick, but they produce the very symptoms of the disease that we are trying to avoid and prevent the spread of. And, I, and again, that's even if you take the germ theory to be accurate, Mount Sinai and New York University suggest using hydrogen peroxide, which they claim in the studies is more effective than toxic ammonium chloride compounds. But see, it's not just ammonium compounds. It's all the chemicals we're exposed to in the environment, from agriculture to textiles to food and water. And these, are, these are subjects of a giant book, written by Don Lester and David Parker called What Really Makes You Ill. They've been discussed in numerous other books. We've had people like Dr. Nancy Appleton on as well to discuss these topics. We had uh, Don and David on the program about a month ago, and Don was nice enough to write me an introduction for the revised edition of my book, Food Philosophy, which is available on the website. Their book was released coincidentally to coincide with the pandemic, as they call it as we call it. And uh, they received a lot of attention because of their work, 
so have a lot of other researchers because of the work, because of the controversial nature, and because of what they've said about what is happening in the world around us. One of the people who has made controversial comments, which have, from what I've heard, been taken out of context and unintentionally, like a game of telephone, have been misconstrued, is Andrew Kaufman, or Dr. Andrew Kaufman. And I'm sure many of you have probably heard of Andrew Kaufman in one way or another. You've heard an interview or something to that effect. Andrew Kaufman, MD, is a natural healing consultant. He's also an inventor. He completed his psychiatric training at Duke University Medical Center after graduating from the Medical University of South Carolina. He also has a BS from MIT in molecular biology. And along with my co-host Jack from the Messenger of Information website, Andrew Kaufman is with us tonight on The Secret Teachings. Let me first say hello to Jack. Jack, can you hear me? How are you? I'm doing fine, thanks. Excellent. And what about you, Andrew Kaufman? Welcome to the show. How are you today, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Jack, I know you wanted to start with a question, and I'm going to allow you to do that, pass it on to you. What would you like to ask Andrew to start? Well, Andy, you burst on the scene back, I believe it was in March, when you basically exposed the falsehood of the COVID test. I was just wondering on a personal level, can you tell us a little bit about your awakening? How long ago did that happen and how did it happen uh, when you started to become more conscious and expand your consciousness? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to tell a little bit about that. And um, I think that uh, there's sort of two uh, ways of looking at this. There's um, how did I become open to uh, doing research and changing my opinions about everything and then what happened in medicine. And I think uh, it was a little bit more difficult um, in medicine because I had invested so much um, in my career all the time and uh, financial resources to get to the point that I was at uh, being able to practice as a physician. And there was so much um, overwhelming information during the initial phases of my training, like during medical school and residency, they really um, give you an tremendous workload. So there's not a lot of time uh, to consider the big picture, although I did start looking at things in residency because we were very evidence-focused and we had uh, regular seminars where we discussed scientific papers and were taught ways of analyzing those papers. And what I started to see is that um, papers that were looking at psychiatric drugs uh, did not really show much of a benefit. They had uh, a variety of different types of tricks and techniques to make it appear that there was a benefit, but these were not meaningful uh, measures. So, for example, rather than looking at someone whose life is a total shambles, right, that they're unable to work or maintain relationships, sometimes even stay out of the criminal justice system, well, a great way to assess the benefit of a treatment would be to say, well, okay, are they able to hold a job? maintain relationships that are healthy and uh, stay out of criminal trouble. But that's not what Everett has looked at in these trials. What they do is that they have a symptom scale or some kind of uh, subjective metric. Sometimes it's completed by the person themselves and other times it's completed by a psychiatrist or other type of mental health professional. And they basically make a score 
on these uh, instruments and then look at the statistical analysis to see is it different before and after the treatment. But what they were counting as a treatment benefit, uh, if you look at what the difference on the test was, really made no meaningful difference in the person's life. But yet this was looked upon as a success story. And in fact, many drugs were approved by the FDA based on this type of evidence. So during while I was a trainee, I was required because of being heavily supervised to use these medications, uh, even if it was against my best um, opinion. But when I started practicing on my own, it became more of my decision of how to manage these things. And what happened is that over the years, I became uh, in my practice, I was using these medicines less and less and less and mostly just uh, using them for like withdrawal or helping people taper off at some point or only using them in certain circumstances, because there are a few circumstances that at least on a short term basis, they can provide uh, a limited benefit. And this evolved over time uh, when I just had more time to observe what was going on with the patients that I was interacting with. And I saw many times actually that medications were in the way of them making true progress, like many of the medications numb your emotions, for example. And if you're numb and unable to feel things, then it makes it difficult to learn from your experience. Um, also, I saw that uh, many people on antidepressants, when I took them off, they stopped thinking about suicide. And so that connection that was on a black box warning from the FDA about these antidepressants increasing suicidal behaviors, I observed this uh, many, many times in my own practice. So this led me to a point when essentially I was just taking uh, all my patients off all of their medications uh, to minimize harm. But I realized that the constraints of the system and the regulatory agencies would really not allow me to do what I thought was fully the right thing to help these people. Um, at the same time I was going through this process, I discovered Kelly Brogan's book, uh, Mind of Your Own. She's uh, also a psychiatrist, and she discovered through her own similar experiences. Um, you know, we each have our own path and our own story. But she began using mostly nutritional interventions that she learned from a famous uh, physician, Nicholas Gonzalez, who had a lot of success with cancer patients. And she adapted his protocols to work with psychiatric patients. And I had the opportunity to try this with uh, someone that I knew uh, professionally and personally. And uh, we actually both did this protocol together, even though she was the one suffering with um, a psychiatric issue, which was a long-standing anxiety problem. And when we went through this procedure, like we both felt really good afterwards and um, her anxiety issues completely went into remission. And uh, basically, once we figured out the particular dietary factor that was driving it, uh, she's been able to stay completely cured of that condition. And that was the first time in my career that anyone was ever able to experience that degree of relief or cure from any mental condition whatsoever. So it kind of led me on a three-year journey to intensely study alternative natural methods of healing and um, also to further study the healthcare system to see what are the uh, you know, most realistic uh, impressions that I can gather or understanding of the system as a whole and the science that it's based on. And uh, this really kind of uh, culminated in 
fall of this year when I, after deliberating for a year, decided to speak publicly about this. So I was actually did a couple of small interviews in November and December with James True and then put out a few um, instructional videos on my own uh, about some basic elements related to health and healing like nutrition and detoxification. And when the pandemic uh, situation started and especially when I saw some of the policies that were instituted that I recognized were a major deviation from all of the prior public health policies about quarantine, I started to become suspicious and started looking into the scientific basis of this pandemic. And um, what I learned was really quite astonishing me, but uh, to me. But uh, I felt that I had to, you know, start speaking out about this and alert people that um, the scientific uh, basis of the pandemic being caused by a virus was uh, extremely shaky at best. Basically, what you've said is that, and I think this is elementary to some people, but others, I think it needs to be reinstated, that the mainline medical community and medical establishment pretty much examines disease as one of those tests that you take in high school where you just basically connect one subject to the definition and it has to be that definition, it has to be that subject, that word. There really isn't an analysis of diet. There isn't an analysis of exposure. Maybe it's to chemicals or something of that nature. I mean, for example, I had a contact dermatitis. I knew it was the chemical at work. I removed myself from that environment. It went away. If I'd have gone to a doctor, I assume that the first thing they would have done is said, you need some kind of antibacterial cream steroids and just given me that rather than ask, well, have you come into contact with anything that might be irritating recently? To me, that sounds like common sense, Andrew, but it doesn't seem like common sense is a part of the mainline medical establishment. Well, the what doctors are taught is how to identify disease and make a, a diagnosis and then match that diagnosis to a therapeutic, which is a drug uh, surgery or radiation. Those are really the only choices. Um, with the, It's interesting that you mention an example because that might be like one rare exception where a doctor might actually ask you if you like changed your um, uh, laundry detergent or something like that um, if, if it was based on exposure, exposure to a chemical, but they wouldn't likely investigate that further. They would just uh, ask you to try to figure it out. And you're right, they would give you a steroid cream probably or instruct you to take an antihistamine to relieve the symptoms. So, but for serious illness, um, toxicity or exposure to toxins or poisons is, is never looked at because it's not taught as a cause of illness. And uh, you're also correct about nutrition. Uh, we had a very brief lecture on nutrition that I recall, which was really just about going over like the essential vitamins and minerals. Um, it didn't really uh, tell you what you needed to know uh, at all. And uh, nutrition was never really talked about as a cause of disease, except for severe nutritional deficiencies that we were told only occurred in the developing world. And so, you know, if we saw like African children um, with an extended belly, like we were taught, you know, what that is called. Um, and that it's a type of protein malnutrition. But uh, we were never expected to deal with that um, in our practice. A, a, lot uh, of that's, a lot of that's based on this idea of, of 
caloric intake, is it not? Like if you get enough calories, you'll be okay, you'll be healthy, or if you burn off a certain amount of calories, you'll be healthy, relatively speaking. But it's really not calories as a whole, it's certain kinds of calories and whether you're getting the proper nutrition with that energy unit. Yeah, well, there are certain conditions, you know, that uh, it's obvious that a person is uh, experiencing starvation, and this can occur during a serious illness like uh, cancer, for example. But the approach of the medical establishment wouldn't be to analyze the most appropriate foods to replenish that person. It would be to use a basically manufactured chemical supplement um, like Ensure. Uh, which uh, is really full of, of unhealthy and toxic things and sugar. And they would just basically give that to you to try to fatten you up. Uh, but there wouldn't be much thought about it. So, so beyond nutrition then, Andrew, and beyond uh, some other very basic things that I think are probably common sense, I think one thing that gets overlooked is stress and anxiety. How much does that play into ill health and how much does that play into the current state of affairs because regardless of what anyone thinks of a pandemic or a virus or COVID-19, people of all mindsets around the world are stressed and anxious and worried to an extreme degree. That has to create, to cultivate an environment of ill health across the board. Yeah, well, that is a huge factor, and uh, I'm glad you brought it up. And But the way medicine is structured and the way medical education has occurred uh, occurs, sorry, is very compartmentalized. So you have these uh, specialties and subspecialties and sub subspecialties. And essentially what you have is everybody is only focusing on a very narrow area of health or of disease, really, not, not of health. And so an example that I like to uh, point out is with uh, vascular disease. So this is, you know, when you have lesions or plaques inside the blood vessels um, that would be related to causing heart attacks and strokes or, or what they call peripheral vascular disease or ischemia in the gut. And so those are all different areas where it's the same disease. It affects your blood vessels, which are throughout your entire body. However, if you are happen to be affected in your feet and legs, you would go to a vascular surgeon. If you happen to have this um, low blood flow to your gut, you would go to an abdominal surgeon. If you had low blood flow to your heart, you would go to either a cardiologist or a cardiac surgeon. And if you had uh, TIAs or strokes, which is the same disease in the blood vessels in your head, then you would go to a neurologist um, or possibly a neurosurgeon. So you see that there are uh, at least four or five different doctors treating the same illness in one part of your body. And so none of them are able to look at the body as a whole and say, this is one disease. Um, instead, they just try to mechanically use their technology to fix that one area, or they give a drug, or usually it's a combination of both, um, but ignore basically the rest of the body or never look at the underlying cause um, of that illness. And with respect to uh, psychological or mind-body, um, this is even more pronounced because often psychiatrists are considered like totally separate from other areas of medicine and they they do have some interface but you know they often don't wear white coats they dress differently they're they're totally separate um, they don't deal with needles and blood and procedures so they essentially think about that all mental problems are caused mentally 
and um, the other doctors think all physical problems are caused physically and they never look at the interaction when in actuality physical disease can be caused completely by psychological experience or psychological shock i like to call it and psychological illness can be caused purely by a physical insult as well as i discovered in the example i mentioned earlier which was related to gluten this is uh, completely ignored in allopathic medicine but it's uh, there's a huge interaction between these systems and you can't take one and not the other if you really want to address a person's health. And so in the current climate, there is intense uh, fear uh, that's being experienced by a wide swaths of the uh, population. And uh, you know, I, I experienced this myself early on and was able to uh, work through it uh, by acquiring knowledge and understanding and doing spiritual work um, to obtain a greater, higher perspective. But most people are, you know, affected by this in very adverse ways. And not only does it make it uh, impossible to see things clearly or to consider new information or evidence to incorporate into your view because you're stuck in survival only thinking. You basically only consider things that are an immediate um, threat or benefit to your survival. But it also takes its toll on your body physiologically. Um, so it affects uh, many organ systems and can cause nutritional deficiencies. It, you're running in fight or flight mode. It uh, affects your heart and blood pressure and, other, and your digestion doesn't run as efficiently. So there are many, many uh, consequences and many disease states that are increased in risk uh, because of this kind of fear of fight or flight physiology that people are being dominated by. And you know, Andrew, that if you think about something like fever, diarrhea, vomiting, and what I say, coughing, sneezing, wheezing, to rhyme a few together there, and anxiety. These are all things that we call symptoms, and they might be symptoms of a quote-unquote disease, but they seem to be the same symptoms of pretty much every disease in some capacity. I mean, you get a fever when you get, you know, you get a fever if you get a splinter, you get a fever if you, you have a, a cold or the flu. I want to ask you, these are symptoms, and they say that these are the symptoms of COVID-19, these are the symptoms of other forms of colds or other kinds of flus, of, of other kinds of uh, very severe pathogenic diseases, but really it's just the body reacting to poison, toxin, stress, etc. This is like the body reacting to some form of of uh, what they call an infection, but something that is not supposed to be in the body or reacting negatively with the body. Is that correct, that these symptoms are just put into categories and classified as specific diseases? Yes, uh, symptoms is a very misleading word uh, because it's used really in the context of the germ theory paradigm. And you're correct to point out that aside possibly from anxiety, all the other symptoms uh, or what are called symptoms that you mentioned are simply methods of your body detoxifying itself. And this can occur during an acute illness or it can be on an ongoing basis if you're exposed to some kind of material that your body um, construes or identifies as toxic or as foreign. And it's really pretty common sense. So let's just think about a runny nose or a cough. Like, what are those things? Well, a runny nose means that your body creates extra fluid and mucus, which takes 
particles and substances out of the body, right? That's why it drips out so it can get away from your body so it won't cause any more harm. A cough, the same thing. It basically expels whatever is in your lungs that your body doesn't want to be there out of your body. So it's pretty straightforward. And these uh, so-called symptoms are actually how your body heals. So according to the terrain theory, which is the, the model that I uh, feel is the most accurate, and when I consult with people and provide them information about their situation, it's based upon terrain theory. And the way to describe an acute illness in terrain theory is that essentially there's something <clears throat> that causes an insult to the tissue. It could be uh, that something that disturbs the terrain or the ecology, the environment. And it could be a nutritional deficiency. Deficiency. It could be a exposure to a toxic substance. Um, it could be a physical trauma. It could even be a psychological trauma it can actually cause damage to tissue. And once the tissue damage is recognized and arrested, either perhaps the the nutrient is replenished or the toxin exposure ends, and so there, it was for a finite period. Then the body goes into a recovery mode where it basically cleans up the damaged tissue. And this is where it recruits microorganisms to come in, and they actually come from your own body. And uh, specific organisms are signaled to come clean up a certain type of tissue injury or a certain type of tissue at a place in your body. And these organisms come in to uh, eat up any debris or waste and get it out of your body. They secrete factors along with your immune system is involved in this regulation that um, cause increased blood flow, which can cause swelling in the tissue and increased secretions because those are the ways to get rid of those waste products. And then it, once the area is cleaned up, then your body can repair it completely by making a, you know, a new cell layer, new cells, or whatever uh, factors that is needed provided your body has the right nutrition. And so this is the kind of complete, complete uh, illness and healing cycle that one would go through if they're in a relatively healthy state. So what would your thoughts be, Andy, about what health was like, disease, illness, let's say roughly prior sometime to 1900, when there weren't chemical toxins, where there weren't pharmaceuticals, where we weren't being uh, bombarded by uh, electromagnetic frequencies? What do you think uh, things were like back then as far as the, there weren't as many toxins to be uh, subjected to? Yeah, well, things were certainly very different, and uh, many of the modern uh, illnesses did not really exist, uh, like, for example, autism. Um, there was some rheumatism, but nowhere near the number of autoimmune diseases that we have today. Um, so many of our modern diseases were not really prevalent um, in the past times, but I think there are some really interesting things to look at in the work of Weston A. Price, and he was a dentist or possibly a, like a forensic odontologist, and he studied the dental and jaw records of uh, indigenous people um, before the Industrial Revolution. And one of the things that he found that was quite fascinating is, uh, one, that there was no tooth decay. And people did not brush their teeth, and they certainly didn't have fluoride at that time. So why was there no tooth decay? It was because they didn't have modern processed foods. 
Um, but there were some other interesting factors that he found that one is that people had all their teeth and their jaws were big enough to actually fit all their teeth, um, including their wisdom teeth. So people had wisdom teeth that came up normally and were in their mouth. And they're actually, their facial structures were different because their jaw and maxilla, which is the upper part of the jaw, were much larger than post-industrial revolution. And he found out through his research that there were three dietary factors that were at play in the jaw size and the ability to accommodate all the teeth. You know, now if uh, anybody out there has kids or remembers being a child yourself, that when you uh, get you know, around maybe eight, nine, 10 years old and your grown up teeth come in that you get a recommendation from the dentist that they might need to pull teeth and maybe they send you to the orthodontist if you want straight teeth and everybody has too many teeth in their mouth and we all know about getting the wisdom teeth pulled out. So this was a stark contrast. And the three nutritional factors um, turned out to be three different uh, fat soluble vitamins that the modern diet has depleted us in. Um, and those are vitamin A, D, and K2. And those are required in a proper balance that you get from eating more traditional foods, such as um, animals that are completely raised on their natural food source, like grass-fed animals. Um, and also uh, various fermented vegetables have some of those nutrients. Um, and since we have fresh vegetables year-round, uh, these days, we don't have to ferment and preserve our vegetables to, uh, to get through the winter, so we're missing out on some of those nutrients. You look at like modern dentistry, and they still use, I think, because I had a friend who got this done years ago, they still use mercury fillings. And I know that going back, Jack, you said to the 1900s before that, for hundreds of years, whether it's food processing, you know, not like food processing today, but food processing, um, whatever dentistry was considered more than a hundred years ago, they use things like arsenic. They use things like mercury. They, they use very toxic elements and chemicals to preserve food to, I mean, certain, certain types of chemicals that, you know, are quote unquote natural, but they're very toxic and they're very poisonous. I mean, mercury is, uh, one of the most toxic substances I think known to man as you would classify it. And not only do we still use mercury in a lot of fillings today, but up until I think, Jack, around the 1900s, uh, mercury was still used as like a solve where people would put it on their skin and it would cause the flesh to fall off. I was reading these stories about <laughs> the flesh would start falling off and they'd be, uh, they'd be diagnosed with leprosy. So there have always been those kinds of poisons. I don't know if, Andrew, you have any comments on that. Yeah, yeah, I do. And I know there haven't always been. Uh, but you're right, in the 1800s, um, into the early 1900s, doctors routinely prescribed, uh, they call them mercurials and arsenicals. So these were, you know, quote unquote, medicines based on mercury and arsenic. And they actually didn't just use them as salves, they gave them orally. They even used these for teething babies, they would give mercury. I've read that, yeah. And uh, they called it a purgative. Um, because it would induce diarrhea because it was so toxic to the GI tract and they would give it basically until they reached that toxicity level um, and they called that an effective dose. But yeah, this was uh, clearly a travesty because it didn't actually improve any condition. Uh, it's, it's clearly a poison, mostly a neurotoxin and the same thing with arsenic. Do you think it's fair to say that in the past people's health, people were generally healthier? In the past when? 
just in the past, do you think people were healthier, generally speaking, without actually without you know, maybe just having holistic doctors or just uh, natural home remedies uh, more so than the modern medicine era? Yeah, well, uh, that would definitely be my opinion, but it's very hard to back this up uh, based on data because there was only so much um, public health type of information collected at a point. And then also the way that they count things um, is really difficult. Like, uh, for example, um, in the era since uh, the infant mortality rate has improved uh, in some respects, it's not necessarily compared with what it was back when people were doing natural childbirth methods. Um, and then because of the large number of abortions, those are not counted as infant mortality. Um, so if they're done for, uh, you know, fetuses that would have uh, been stillbirths, they're not counted if, a, if an abortion is done. So that really skews the, the survival data. So it's hard to tell because we do see, you know, over the 20th century that there was some increase in longevity according to these statistics, but I don't know that it's actually reflects a real increase. But we do have, um, for the first time in, in recent years, in the last several years, we've actually seen a decrease in overall longevity. And that is uh, certainly very concerning. You know, we, we hear a lot today, Andrew, about how we have these great scientists, we have these great doctors and chemists and biologists, and they develop all these wonderful chemicals. And they say, I saw this full page advertisement in the USA Today that said, a Brussels sprout is just like any other combination of chemicals. And it listed like 60 or so chemicals in a Brussels sprout. And then it was an advertisement for a chemical company. And I thought, yeah, well, that Brussels sprout, all that works together naturally and this chemical company is selling synthetic chemicals that are toxic. And the public doesn't think that way. It's just a fluff piece. It's an advertisement to make you think, oh, chemicals are natural. So that must mean if we derive something in a lab synthetically, even if it's from something natural, organic, if you will, it must be safe. That's the implication. But it's not based on any kind of science. It's based on assumption. And I feel like we think today that we're so advanced medically and scientifically, but a hundred years from now, just like Jack, you looked back to the 1900s, we'll probably look back to the early 21st century and think the same thing that we think today about the 1900s. Why were they using mercury? And we'll probably look back and think the same thing. Why were they doing this? Why were they doing that? Because today it seems like it's advanced, but tomorrow it's quite primitive. It's my feelings anyway. Yeah, well, advanced is uh, different from successful um, because the burden of disease, the number of people chronically ill, the number of people taking medications that, you know, they feel they are required is, is very high. The, the rate of disability is very high. So we have a large disease burden um, at present. Um, but I think the what you talked about is something that uh, we should explore at length in terms of the natural substances versus synthetic chemicals and most people i think when you say chemical what they really mean is a synthetic chemical something made in a manufacturing facility or a laboratory rather than something made by nature but of course every substance has a chemical structure 
So it would be technically accurate to say that Brussels sprouts does have a lot of chemicals in it, um, but nonetheless, uh, it's not the same as these synthetic chemicals. Now, of course, there are plenty of natural materials that are very toxic, right? We have things like pufferfish toxin and uh, cobra venom um, and other components like that. But we know to stay away from those things, and their nature gives us clues really to identify uh, those types of predatory animals so that we can be careful. But we, whether we evolved or we were designed, however you want to think about it, we uh, were formulated uh, specifically to live in this natural environment. And all of the other chemical structures from plants and animals and from the surface of the earth are all things that we are compatible with because that's the environment that we either were designed for or evolved into. When you then start uh, creating brand new compounds that never existed in the natural environment, well, our biology is not equipped to deal with that or process it. So for example, like when we metabolize food, which means like break it down to use for energy or raw materials, we actually create some toxic substances in that process, like things like reactive oxygen species or another word for free radicals. But we have a specific mechanisms in our body, like for example, our liver makes a compound called glutathione and it is able to quench those reactive oxygen species so that they don't cause damage. But when we're exposed to something like mercury or aluminum, right, uh, which is something that has to be mined from deep in the earth by a uh, technological process, it's not something that, you know, if we were a, a hunter-gatherer that we would have, uh, you know, picked uh, from a certain banana tree and it would have been contaminated with aluminum. So our bodies have no idea what to do with these toxic heavy metals. And so I think the science shows with aluminum that the first thing the body tries to do is just sequester it. It walls it off right in the muscle tissue where it's injected from in a vaccine, for example, in a structure called a granuloma, which just really keeps it separate there so it can't get anywhere else and cause harm. But that's not a permanent solution. and It's not a way for the body to actually get rid of it or process it to make it less damaging. So I think the corollary of this is that our body doesn't have the machinery to deal with these synthetical, uh, synthetic compounds made in a factory or in someone's imagination. And so that's why they're responsible for so much toxicity. Um, even if you just look at the mainstream uh, research, there's an article from the Journal of the American Medical Association that shows that each year, 128,000 people die from taking prescription drugs as directed, not by accidental overdose or because of an error, but taking them as directed. Now, I don't think that uh, there's any such toxicity from plant medicines or from food. So this is uh, a consequence of trying to adapt this synthetic chemistry to a natural organism that is not equipped to process those chemicals. Well, maybe what we should do is because of all those deaths, we should have another lockdown and we should wear masks <laughs> to prevent our inhalation and exposure to those chemicals. Andrew, well, we could just have a ban on pharmaceuticals. Or uh, we could that would have be that. much easier. 
or, or we could have that. But it wouldn't be as fun. We couldn't play Pandemic. Andrew Kaufman is our guest this evening. I'm also joined by Jack, my good friend and co-host. This is The Secret Teachings. I'm your host, Ryan Gable. We're on the Fringe FM, the website www.thesecretteachings.info. If you'd like to contact us, rdgable at yahoo.com. Stay with us more after this. Secret Teachings. To contact the show, to share information and your opinion, or give recommendations, email rdgable at yahoo.com. Visit the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the secret teachings, or visit the website at www.thesecretteachings.info. Here at the Secret Teachings Radio Show, we're going on 11 years broadcasting. It's been a long run, and I hope that there'll be a lot more to come. In 11 years, we've acquired a massive amount of shows with hundreds of guests, thousands of timeless subjects. You can access that entire archive right now when you subscribe on our website at thesecretteachings.info. Now, all you have to do, it's very simple, is visit www.thesecretteachings.info. You click the tab at the top of the page that says Donate or Subscribe, and you donate $35 through PayPal. You'll see the button there. You're going to get a one-year subscription with access to every show. You can download it and stream it. You'll also get a free copy of one of my books, and I'll ship it to you free in the United States. It's only $35, and you can do that at thesecretteachings.info. On the website, you'll also find my books. If you'd like to see them individually, read reviews, and more. The books are in soft cover and digital form, Occult Arcana, Food Philosophy, and The Technological Elixir. You can email us at rdgable at yahoo.com and catch us on the Fringe FM five nights a week. When you subscribe to the show or you buy a book, it supports you, it supports the network, and it supports the secret teachings. But even if you don't subscribe, you can still find a free archive of some of our best shows on the website, and we give away one free show a week, www.thesecretteachings.info. This is Dave Cruz, host of Beyond the Strange, and you're listening to The Fringe FM. If you're interested in all things that include the occult, from witchcraft to voodoo, mythology to alchemy, check out Ryan Gable's book, Occult Arcana, with hundreds of beautiful images. If you want to look at technology, black goo, UFOs, and demonic packs made in the entertainment industry, Check out the technological elixir, black goo, transhumanism, and invoking AI. And if you want a practical look at food, lifestyle, and ingredients, even those in your pet food, with free solutions to better health, check out Food Philosophy. All three of these books are available in softcover or PDF at thesecretteachings.info. That's where you can read reviews, see pictures, and order yours today. It supports The Secret Teachings, you, and The Fringe FM. We've heard your feedback loud and clear. You called it out, and now we're answering. All new live programming, five nights a week. 
Always remember the Fringe FM is for you, the listener, and we appreciate your feedback. Keep the feedback coming. You can email us at talkback at thefringe.fm, call the station at 501-777-5631, or send us a message on Facebook at The Fringe FM. The Secret Teachings is the middle ground between the mainstream and alternative, between the official story and clickbait conspiracy. It lies between man's lack of critical thinking and his acknowledgement of discovering the patterns of nature. This is a radio show of objective analysis from the occult to pop conspiracy and health. A show we call The Secret Teachings. You can catch the broadcast Monday through Friday on the Fringe FM thefringe.fm and www.thesecretteachings.info Join me on a journey where getting lost is the only true destination. Where the past, present, and future all coexist on the same timeline. A reminder that the future is not some distant glimmer, but a bright light shining in your eyes. This is the future we are in right now. Welcome to a future where our true reflection is only revealed once the screen goes dark. Welcome to the darkness. I hope you find it enlightening. I'm Clyde Lewis from Ground Zero Radio, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings with Ryan Gable. This is David Parker, one of the authors of What Really Makes You Ill, or Everything You Think You Knew About Disease Is Wrong. I'm Dawn Lester, co-author of What Really Makes You Ill, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings. And uh, it's been a pleasure to be here. I'm Ryan Gable, your host, and this is The Secret Teachings radio broadcast right here on The Fringe FM five nights a week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday at the same time each night. If you'd like to contact us, rdgable at yahoo.com. That's r-d-g-a-b-l-e at yahoo.com. And check out our website with all of our previous broadcasts with great guests and timeless subjects and my books on the website. The one tonight I'd recommend is Food Philosophy. It deals with a lot of what we're discussing tonight. Our guest, Andrew Kaufman, MD, a natural healing consultant. And we're also joined by our good friend and co-host, Jack, from the Messenger of Information website, messengerof.info, where Jack has a lot of really great, well, information posted for free to access news articles, videos, and things like that. Andrew, I wanted to ask you, I was reading about the early writings on the subject of a quote-unquote virus in context with its original meaning. 
And apparently the word virus comes from Latin, and it means slimy liquid poison or a noxious substance. And it can also be defined as an, as an infective agent that consists of a nucleic acid molecule and a protein coat, very, very small, and uh, multiplies within living cells of a host. That's, that's kind of how we see it today. But interestingly, I looked at the origin in a dictionary, and the origin is credited to Middle English, and a virus was considered a kind of venom, like venom from a snake, which you would assume is a noxious substance. And the dictionary also says that a virus in, in this context is essentially a poisonous substance rather than a specific particle that comes into your body. So there are things coming into your body. It is being attacked, but it's not being attacked by a virus per se. It's being attacked by, well, I guess it is a virus. It's a noxious substance. But that's a little bit different than thinking of like a kind of dead, kind of alive, but only alive if it gets in your cell viral particulate. Can you comment on that? What exactly is a virus and, and why has the definition changed? Yeah, well, it's a very confusing term. And um, depending on who you listen to in the current day and age talking about it, you can really get confused as to what is meant by a virus and what it is. But uh, you're, you're absolutely right to point out the original meaning of it being a poison, and it did refer to snake venom at some point. And I think that's actually the most accurate current meaning, at least if we're going to say that a virus causes an illness. Well, certainly poisons do cause illness. And I, my opinion is that all of the diseases or illnesses that they tell us are caused by a virus, meaning some kind of microorganism, are actually caused by poisons or toxins. And I can give you, uh, you know, one easy example, uh, which would be yellow fever. Um, yellow fever is, uh, we're told it's caused by a virus, but it's actually caused by uh, the toxins that are created by microorganisms when dead animals are in the drinking water supply. Um, there was a famous outbreak of yellow fever in Philadelphia in Revolutionary War times. And once the dead animals were cleaned up out of the water source, um, the disease went away. Um, so that's kind of a, a clear example. But the idea that there was a hidden, unseeable element that caused disease goes way back in history. And there were different names for it, like I believe uh, miasma was a name at one time. But when the germ theory scientists were really um, uh, working hard and germ theory paradigm was taking hold, which is, you know, the late 1800s into the 1900s, um, they had microscopes at that time that they could visualize bacteria and yeast and fun fungi and other small organisms, but but only to a certain extent. And they were able to find microscopic evidence of bacteria and other microorganisms that they could visualize present at the sites of various diseases. Um, they assumed, based on their presence, that they were causing the disease, which I believe is uh, incorrect and has been disproven. But nonetheless, at the time, the predominant thinking was that those microorganisms that they were visualizing uh, were the cause of disease, but it didn't explain certain diseases like polio, for example. And so they hypothesized that there was an unseen agent that was like bacteria, um, that was still a germ, but it was just too small to be seen. And they had some evidence that 
uh, if they filtered out bigger things, that there was some thing that was present that was the cause of illness. Um, but, you know, that could easily be a toxic substance because it would be usually a chemical that would be much, much smaller than a cell, so it would also be filterable. So those initial experiments didn't prove what it was, but they suspected it was something that was alive. Then you had the invention of the electron microscope, which allowed scientists to see things that were much, much smaller, um, but it could only visualize dead tissue. So you couldn't observe the behavior of organisms. But they already wanted to look for this virus uh, material or germ because they already believed that it was there causing these diseases. And what happened is that um, it became uh, really, really difficult to pick out any particle in any of these people that was uniform or s seemed to be present in large numbers. In other words, they were looking at tissue from people suffering with these diseases and they saw all types of particles coming off the damaged cells because they saw that the cells were damaged and dying and they saw all these different particles, but they could not say if anything was not just cellular debris of a dying cell. And then what happened in the, I believe it was 1954, a Nobel Prize winning scientist who won a Nobel Prize for different research came up with a procedure and his name was Enders that um, he claimed demonstrated the presence of a virus or was the quote isolation. Because prior to that, there was a set of rules that was put forth by the germ theory scientists themselves. Specifically, it was codified by Robert Koch. Um, but he wasn't initially his idea, but he's the one credited with, with putting it in writing. And it was just a set of four common sense rules by which you could prove that there was actually a microorganism associated with the disease, and you could prove that it caused that disease. And so they were unable to prove this for um, any viral diseases based on the, the problems that I talked about with the microscopy. And they, so Enders came up with this procedure where what he did was he mixed the tissue sample from a sick individual. So whatever the site of disease, they would take a sample from. So like if it was a lung infection or disease, they would take lung fluid um, and they would mix that with a cell culture. And um, this procedure, when done in modern laboratory, they often add antibiotics and also bovine serum albumin, which is uh, a blood product from, uh, from cows. Um, and they would incubate the tissue sample with these cultured cells, and the cells were a different kind of cell than where the infection came from, uh, but it could be the same kind. And after several days, they would show that there was damage to these cells in the culture. And they said that that damage, or they called it cytopathic effects, was proof of the presence of a virus. But the problem was, is that one, they didn't take the fluid from the sick person and purify out a viral particle from that directly so that they knew exactly what they were adding to this tissue culture. And then two, they did not perform negative control experiments where they took lung fluid from a healthy person and added it to the same mixture of elements in the cell culture and observed that there were no similar cytopathic effects. 
And so this is the procedure that really changed everything in virology and was taken as proof that a virus was isolated. And essentially every single virus isolation paper subsequent to that time has used this same exact procedure. Still no negative controls. Do you know about the work of the French scientist Antoine Bicamp? Béchamp? Is that, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, I, I, I'm, yeah I, it's a the, very difficult Béchamp. name to pronounce. <laughs> one, one more time for me. Antoine Béchamp. Béchamp, yeah. So from what I understand, he was doing work at the same time Pasteur was doing work, and it's kind of like the battle between Tesla and, and uh, Edison, where Edison wins out and Tesla's kind of forgotten. And we remember Pasteur, but we don't remember Antoine. And he had talked about microzemas, I believe, or microzymas, and how they um, weren't really germs the way that Pasteur saw them, but that they were a form of evolutionary buildup within cells, and that they essentially transformed into what we call disease-causing bacterium, fungus, or viruses. Could you expand on that a little bit, and how we've maybe forgotten that history, and why that has died away, and we've married the Pasteur theory instead? Yeah, well, no, this is a really good thing to bring up. And I, I did hint at it a little bit before when I said that the bacteria that comes to repair uh, tissue damage comes from our own body. And that's one of the main places it comes from is those microzyma. But uh, there's, uh, there's a lot to look at here. And Pasteur um, and Béchamp were contemporaries. And, uh, but Béchamp was a very serious scientist. He was a physician and scientist, and he was studying fermentation. And fermentation, uh, which, uh, you know, probably most people know about is what's used to make wine and beer um, and other uh, food products. And it's when plant material is decomposed by microorganisms and uh, turned into um, a different thing. And often a byproduct of that could be alcohol or it could be vinegar as well. And that was considered a model for infections. So once there was this idea about microorganisms causing disease that they called infections, they used this as a model because it was essentially microorganisms eating uh, organic material and transforming it. And so they wanted to use that as a model for infection. Now, how valid it is or not, I think, um, you know, we can judge that it's probably uh, quite different. But nonetheless, what happened was Pasteur was not really um, a biologist. He was not a physician. He had training in chemistry. Um, and he was uh, very much a member of the society. So he spent a lot of time uh, developing relationships with prominent business people and politicians and was concerned about his reputation. Um, and such. And this got him a lot of fame and uh, a lot of credit historically. But he didn't really do too many original experiments. And in fact, he uh, copied and plagiarized a lot of Béchamp's work. So early on, when Béchamp was studying fermentation as a model, uh, he did some experiments that seemed to show that the microorganisms that would cause the fermentation have to come from outside of the plant material. And so this was based on doing it in some bottles that they let in air from the outside versus didn't let in air from the outside. And the ones that with the air from the outside uh, resulted in fermentation. So Pasteur 
copied this experiment actually, but did it in a sensational way where he basically traveled through different vineyards in the south of France um, and took the air from the vineyard to show the experiment and made it like a big photo opportunity and publicized uh, the whole experiment and showed that, you know, with the air injected fermentation took place. And this was supposed to be proof that germs come from outside the body um, to invade and cause disease. Now, I want to also point out that it's important to look at the meaning of the word germ as well, because germ comes from the original meaning of a budding or new growth. And in biology, it's typically talked about as the germ cells or germ line has to do with the cells that form new organisms like egg or sperm or like the original stem cells that come directly from the embryo. Those are the germ cells. So here in germ theory, we once again have changed or in this case completely inverted the meaning to mean something that destroys life or takes life, right? Because it's a cause of disease rather than a new life or a new aspect of life like germinate, right, comes from that, which means right, new growth. Right. So, so this meaning was also subverted. And then uh, what is not known is that Béchamp did subsequent experiments and realized that it was because he added or didn't add some other factor to those uh, containers that didn't ferment without the outside air and was able to show actually that plants could be fermented without adding any microorganisms from outside the plant. So in other words, they also could come from within the plant. And then this is what led to the discovery of the microzyma. So it's kind of like, so, like during the current wars where Edison with his DC current fighting Westinghouse and Tesla with the AC current, they would go out into the streets with the alternating current and they'd kill animals in this, this uh, exaggerated display of how dangerous AC current was. But it was very similar, I guess, then to the story of Pasteur, who kind of went overboard and was overly expressive of, of, of uh, his experiment, but it wasn't really that accurate. It's the same kind of deception we see today with companies that, well, Monsanto, I read some of the original reports, they've got tumors that grow in rats and they just cut the tumors out and said the rats had no tumors, it's safe. It's just complete fraud. Yeah, well, absolutely. And, you know, I think the two examples are good to bring up together because, you know, uh, fortune is one thing that can lead to people compromising their morals. And Pasteur was looking to, you know, get famous, get contracts to make money, uh, whereas Béchamp was in his laboratory trying to find out how nature works. And I don't think he paid too close attention to what Pasteur was doing, although he did try to confront him. On one famous occasion, uh, after Pasteur took credit for coming up with the idea for this experiment, and rather than respond, Pasteur just simply walked out of the room in front of an audience and uh, never had to take accountability uh, for doing that. Jack, if you want to throw so, a question in here. Yeah, please. Andy, getting back to viruses for a moment, uh, real simple question. I guess there's some controversy. Viruses, alive or not alive, and if they're not alive, it's my understanding that they cannot travel within the body, so it would be impossible for them to travel outside of the body. What are your thoughts? 
Well, this is a, a little bit of a challenging question to answer truthfully, but I want to give it an, as honest an answer as possible. So I want to say that there actually is no virus in the way that we're told it exists. So in other words, there's no particle made of genetic material and a protein shell that causes disease, period, not one. one not one has been isolated or shown to exist uh, with any scientific certainty. There are a variety of different kinds of particles, and some of them do contain genetic material, and they have a lipid bilayer membrane that has surface proteins on it. Um, and one type of particle that has been pretty well characterized like that is exosomes. Um, so exosomes, if you want to ask the question, are exosomes alive or not? Um, when I studied biology, I was told that there are several properties that determine if something is a living organism or not. And those properties are the ability to uh, have reproduction, locomotion, right, which means move on their own, um, respiration, metabolism, and uh, perhaps one or two others. And these particles don't have any of those properties. They're essentially just packaged chemicals. And even if you look at, there's other packaged chemicals in our body, in our body for example, like uh, cholesterol is packaged into lipoproteins. Um, that is, has a specific structure involving several different chemicals. So I think that whatever kind of particle you're talking about, that essentially you're just talking about a package of chemicals. So it would be maybe the equivalent of us sent with uh, holding a parcel, like in, uh, in the, the scale of, of humans, right? So it would be like a package, right? A package has the outer part, uh, which is usually a box, maybe some wrapping. Um, inside are the contents, which would be like the genetic material. And then there would be an address or a routing label on there, which would target it to a certain location. So exosomes and other similar particles are essentially like that. They have receptors that is like the address label. They have a membrane, which is like the box. And then they have the inner contents, which would be some genetic material and possibly some proteins. Um, so it would be equivalent to that. So completely inanimate, passive object or material. Andrew Kaufman so, is our guest tonight. We got to take a break, Jack. We'll be right back on the secret teachings. Save that thought, Jack. Andrew Kaufman, our guest this evening. I'm Ryan Gable, your host. This is the secret teachings, and this is the Fringe FM. Check out the network website at thefringe.fm and our website at www.thesecretteachings.com. Info rdgable at yahoo.com is the email. Don't go anywhere. More after this. This is The Secret Teachings. To contact the show, to share information and your opinion, or give recommendations, email rdgable at yahoo.com. Visit the Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesecretteachings or our website, thesecretteachings.info. Here at The Secret Teachings radio show, we're going on 11 years broadcasting. It's been a long run, and I hope that there'll be a lot more to come. In 11 years, we've acquired a massive amount of shows with hundreds of guests, thousands of timeless subjects. You can access that entire archive right now when you subscribe 
on our website at thesecretteachings.info. Now all you have to do, it's very simple, is visit www.thesecretteachings.info. You click the tab at the top of the page that says donate or subscribe, and you donate $35 through PayPal. You'll see the button there. You're going to get a one-year subscription with access to every show. You can download it and stream it. You'll also get a free copy of one of my books, and I'll ship it to you free in the United States. It's only $35, and you can do that at thesecretteachings.info. On the website, you'll also find my books. If you'd like to see them individually, read reviews, and more, the books are in softcover and digital form, Occult Arcana, Food Philosophy, and The Technological Elixir. You can email us at rdgable at yahoo.com and catch us on the Fringe FM five nights a week. When you subscribe to the show or you buy a book, it supports you, it supports the network, and it supports the secret teachings. But even if you don't subscribe, you can still find a free archive of some of our best shows on the website, and we give away one free show a week, www.thesecretteachings.info. Alex. Hi, I'm Alex Exum, and you're listening to KTLK, The Fringe FM. The Secret Teachings t-shirts are now available through TeePublic and the show website at thesecretteachings.info. Whatever your color or size, check out the full selection on our website. Shirt designs include the Secret Teachings logo, our Occult Arcana shirt, the infamous Mothman, and of course the Blue Chicken Avian shirts, among others like the Paranormal Desert shirt. Check them out on TeePublic by searching for The Secret Teachings or simply visit thesecretteachings.info and select the merchandise option at the top of the page. If you're interested in all things that include the occult, from witchcraft to voodoo, and from mythology to alchemy, then why not check out the book Occult Arcana, complete with hundreds of beautiful images. Maybe you want to look at technology, black goo, UFOs, and demonic pacts made in the entertainment industry. Check out the technological elixir, black goo, transhumanism, and invoking AI. Or if that's not enough and you want a practical look at food, lifestyles and ingredients, even those in your pet food, with free solutions to better health, then check out Food Philosophy. All three of these books are available in softcover or PDF at www.thesecretteachings.info. That's where you can read reviews, see pictures, and even order yours today. It not only supports The Secret Teachings and Fringe FM, but most importantly, it supports you. is out there. There's something out here. And so are we. KTOK Digital Broadcasting, The Fringe FM. I'm Ryan Gable of The Secret Teachings Radio Show, and you're listening to KTLK Digital Broadcasting, The Fringe FM. Check out my show, The Secret Teachings, Monday through Friday, right here on The Fringe, 11 p.m. Pacific, 1 a.m. Eastern, U.S. time. loads of them all snaking off like roots and what we do on one path affects what happens on other paths time is a construct people think you can't go back and change things but you can 
That's what flashbacks are. They're invitations to go back and make different choices. When you make a decision, you think it's you doing it, but it's not. It's the spirit out there that's connected to our world that decides what we do, and we just have to go along for the ride. Mirrors let you move through time. The government monitors people. They pay people to pretend to be your relatives, and they put drugs in your food, and they film you. There's messages in every game, like Pac-Man. Do you know what Pac stands for? P-A-C, Program and Control. He's Program and Control Man. The whole thing's a metaphor. He thinks he's got free will, but really, he's trapped in a maze, in a system. All he can do is consume. He's pursued by demons that are probably just in his own head. And even if he does manage to escape by slipping out one side of the maze, what happens? He comes right back in the other side. People think it's a happy game. It's not a happy game. It's a fucking nightmare world. And the worst thing is, it's real and we live in it. It's all code. If you listen closely, you can hear the numbers. There's a cosmic flowchart that dictates where you can and where you can't go. I've given you the knowledge. I've set you free. But no, I really appreciate being on your show and you ask great questions and have a dialogue and not every show does that. This is Linda Godfrey, author of Monsters Among Us. My website is lindagodfrey.com, and you are listening to The Secret Teachings with Ryan Gable. I just wanted to thank you and tell you what a delight that program was. It was one of the most fun interviews I've had. Hello, I'm Sandra Fecht, counselor in trauma and satanic ritual abuse. You can reach me at Sandra Fecht, F as in Frank, E-C-H-T, dot com. You're listening to Ryan Gable's The Secret Teachings. I'm Ryan Gable, your host, and you are listening to the Secret Teachings radio broadcast right here on the Fringe FM, where you can catch us five nights a week. Immediately following the new broadcast is an older broadcast, which, of course, if you're in the UK or Australia, it's a drive-time broadcast. For those of you who can't listen to the show, there are replays throughout the week on the Fringe FM, or you can simply visit the website www.thesecretteachings.info and subscribe to the archive but even if you don't subscribe there are still a number of shows available and I'm usually a pretty nice guy if you ask me hey can I get a copy of that show even if it's in the archive I'll probably send it to you I even give away a lot of free digital copies of my book sometimes as well it's all on the website www.thesecretteachings.info I like the honor system here on the show it seems to work out very well if you'd like to contact us, rdgable at yahoo.com. That's r-d-g-a-b-l-e at yahoo.com. I don't care what you think or where you're from or what you look like. If you have questions or comments, maybe you'd like to be a guest. Maybe you're a musician. You'd like us to play your music on the show. Shoot us an email. We'll see what we can work out. rdgable at yahoo.com. Again, our guest tonight, Andy Kaufman, MD, a natural healing consultant. He's also an inventor. He completed his psychiatric training at Duke University Medical Center, and that's after he graduated from the Medical University of South Carolina. He also has a BS from MIT in molecular 
biology. And to start this final segment on the broadcast this evening, we've had Andy through the entire broadcast, so you've missed an hour and a half or so if you're just joining us. This show will be free after the initial airing on the website at thesecretteachings.info. We wanted to talk a little bit about current events pertaining to something that obviously I think a lot of us are tired of hearing about, COVID-19. And then we'd like to talk a little bit about a number of questions that we'll kind of submit in rapid-fire form to Andy. When I say we, we're also joined by my good friend and co-host, Jack, from the Messenger of Information website. So let's start there, Andy. What do you think about COVID-19? I'm sure you've explained this hundreds, maybe thousands of times. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about? Maybe you haven't gotten into too much detail about anything that maybe is off-limits on other shows. I don't know. You've got the floor, my friend. Well, thank you. Um, you know, uh, I know people are tired of hearing about it, and I'm definitely uh, tired of talking about it. But, um, you know, I've, I've talked about it at length, and essentially my main points are that the scientific papers that claim to have identified and isolated uh, a new virus um, have actually not done that because of the procedures that I talked a little bit about earlier. But in addition to that, they have certainly not proven that even if they found something, uh, even if it was a virus by some unknown mechanism, that they have certainly not established that it causes any disease. And in fact, right in the conclusion sections of the papers, they say this uh, outright. So there's basically been all of these policies that have been enacted, uh, which has turned the world completely upside down without any clear scientific evidence to justify it whatsoever. Even right. though and, e even though Fauci said, we don't believe in science, he didn't provide and, any information. He said, you don't believe in science if you don't trust me. So are you anti-science, Dr. Kaufman? <laughs> well, I'm extremely pro-science, but I look at science in the way that it's supposed to be practiced. There it is, Which yeah. means that um, if you have a scientific theory and you provide some evidence for it, well, that's great. And then it becomes the job of all the other scientists in looking at that area to try as hard as they can to disprove that theory. And if the theory holds true with all the effort of trying to disprove it over time, then it stands up and it may even become what might call a scientific law that's accepted as a fact. But until that's done, then it still remains a theory. And what we've essentially uh, come to the state of our scientific inquiry is that no one questions anything. They simply do more research based on the theoretical assumptions and basically as if it's been proven. It's dogma. And this is true. You're right. This is true with germ theory. And so right. I, I refer to the virus dogma as what the explanation is about viruses causing diseases. Well, then let me ask you this. What exactly is, in context with how we typically define the wording, what is a biological weapon then? And is it possible that if bacterium is pleomorphic in the sense that it changes based on environment and can become maybe quote-unquote toxic by some definition, that in a biological weapons laboratory, let's say, bacteria can be turned into something that is perhaps, let's say, aggressive or dangerous 
based on an artificially chemically induced environment that does make it poisonous and then that's released. What are your thoughts on that? Well, this already happens in the context of our bodies. So there's an illness called C. diff that may pe many people may be familiar with, and it stands for Clostridium difficile, which is a certain type of bacteria. Now, this bacteria is a normal constituent of our colon. Okay, so it's there normally um, all the time in certain numbers in balance with all the other species. When we treat people with broad-spectrum uh, potent antibiotics, which are used very frequently for all sorts of illness. What can happen is that the all the other species that normally coexist in harmony with the C. diff bacteria are killed and wiped out. And there is this hostile environment created by the poison antibiotics. So it may make the clostridium or the C. diff change its behavior to become more invasive or virulent. And it also allows it to proliferate because it's one of the only species that survived the antibiotics. And now all of these extra resources are available to it. And when this happens, it causes this life-threatening disease called pseudomembranous colitis, which is a uh, a long word to say, that's why people just say, I have C. diff, or my you know, grandmother got C. diff. And um, so this is an illness basically caused by the artificial disruption of a bacteria to make it um, something that would cause disease. But it's not really the bacteria that caused the disease. It was the antibiotics that caused the disease. Now, I don't think that it would be easy or, po or even possible um, to replicate this in a laboratory because it's based on the environment where the bacteria lives that the insult occurs. So in other words, if you created a more invasive uh, form of C. diff in a laboratory and then gave it to a person who had the normal balance of microbes in their colon, I don't think that organism would do anything. I think it would just get flushed out because it didn't have access to all those extra resources in the context of everything else being wiped out by the antibiotic. What are they doing in these labs? And are they just watching TV? Well, uh, I don't know exactly what they're doing in the laboratory, but like there, I think if you wanted to make a weapon that would affect a large number of people, uh, it would be much easier to poison the water supply or the food supply um, Maybe than aerosol to develop some kind of biological weapon. Aerosolize something and spray it? Yeah, of course. Um, that type of thing has been used extensively in warfare, right? We, In fact, chemotherapy was uh, made from those kind of chemical weapons that were used in World War I mm -hmm. and World That's War right. II. That's right. But so if I were, like, I think there might be a way to, like, use exosomes to make uh, some kind of weapon, um, possibly, but it would be uh, an extremely expensive and laborious uh, task, and it's hard to say how much damage it would do, uh, whereas it would be really simple to put some kind of poison in, you know, building ventilation right. systems and the water supply sprayed in the air, you know, many, many ways it could be what, done. What about something Which, like, uh, I'm sorry, Jack, one, one last thing, and I'll let you go into the rapid fire. What about something like, I remember 10 years ago, I was doing radio at a college radio station, and I did a show about dinosaurs. And I talked about how I felt that it was an it was a very possible scenario that dinosaurs were 
exterminated through disease rather than an asteroid, but that the asteroid itself might have brought the environmental conditions of disease to the planet. Let's just say that this whole history is accurate. So perhaps comets, asteroids, and things like this that are extraterrestrial in a sense, these things can bring about, once in a while, environmental conditions that make a lot of people sick over the entire planet, whether that's the bubonic plague, the various outbreaks of that, or, you know, obviously you had warfare in the early 20th century, World War I, and, you know, so many millions of people dying of the Spanish flu, but that was uh, obviously contributed to by wartime uh, chemicals and weapons and munitions and things like that. So what do you think about asteroids comments? Does that play any factor in this historically? Yeah, well, you brought up a couple of interesting examples, and I know you had uh, John Lester and David uh, Parker on the show before, and uh, they are an excellent resource, and they write about the bubonic plague or the black plague, if they're the same thing, where there was interesting data from like tree rings um, that showed that there was high levels of toxic gases in the atmosphere at that time, like ammonia. So yeah, yeah. Uh, there's you know, primary evidence for this type of thing. And we know that, you know, like volcanic eruptions, for example, can put a lot of toxic uh, materials into the, the air that we breathe and could cause uh, mass illness for sure. And then I've also heard about comets that sometimes carry um, cyanide, uh, either gas or uh, a cyanide salt along with it. So if something like that came into our atmosphere and the air was flooded with cyanide, that would certainly cause uh, major illness and casualties. So I, I do think that um, these type of uh, cataclysmic event could certainly bring out um, a massive, uh, you know, worldwide illness or, or even uh, morta significant mortality. Yes, it certainly is possible. So I'm, I'm under the impression and the mindset that there is actually no COVID-19 virus. Um, to my knowledge, there's been no government or public health agency that has proven the existence of COVID-19. I believe it's just a, a psychological warfare against all of humanity. And, um, you know, some of the comments you've made kind of reinforce that in my mind. But uh, let's just get real quick to the um, PCR test, the covid uh, 19 tests that you basically disproved, Andy, you know, and you brought up, uh, you know, something that most of us had never heard about exo exosomes. Okay. So it, by the biochemist, Carrie Mullis was the one that invented this PCR test. He won the Nobel prize in chemistry in 1993. And from what I've heard, he was quoted on numerous occasions to say that the test does not was not designed and does not diagnose viruses. So I'd like to have your comment on that first. And then secondly, I'd like to know, has anyone tried to debunk your conclusion about the PCR test and exosomes? Yeah, uh, good questions. And uh, I can start with the latter. And uh, I think there have been many people who have tried to debunk many uh, claims that I've made. But whenever I've uh, looked at this material, and I try not to spend a lot of time because it's not very rigorous uh, or serious. So in other words, I haven't heard any strong, serious arguments. And I, there has been a lot of ad hominem, like people questioning whether I'm a doctor or even resorting to name calling and things like that. But I think there's a very important logic 
principle that applies here. This is known as Hitchens razor. And essentially what it says is that um, if a claim is based on no evidence, then you don't need any evidence to dismiss the claim. And so the claim that there is a virus that causes uh, a new disease uh, has no evidence behind it. Therefore, you don't need any evidence to dismiss it. So neither is it my responsibility to disprove it. Um, and anyone else who wants to disprove me, what they should instead do is try to prove that there actually is um, a virus that's been shown to cause disease. And if they present me with evidence of that, I'd be happy to look at it very seriously. And some people have, but I think in all the cases so far, what they have not fully understand, uh, understood the evidence that they present me, like they send me a paper that in the title says one thing, but, it, but the people didn't either didn't read the paper or didn't understand what they were actually doing because this is a major problem in scientific papers is that it says one thing in the title, but then it doesn't back it up in the body of the paper. And so in that case, you just disregard the title because that's meaningless. But you, what you have to do is look at the methods and the results and say, well, does this experiment and these experimental results support what is said in the title? And if it doesn't, you dismiss it. That, that and, is, I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I wanted to add something. I don't know. Did you see the yeah. story about the doctor the scientist who supposedly detected that COVID-19 can spread up to 26 feet. Did you read or hear about that study? No, I'm not familiar with that particular one. This was, this was exactly what you're saying. I talked about it on the show. Someone who was debating me on the subject of masks and asymptomatic carrying of disease sent it to me, and they said, see, this proves that you're wrong. And the headline, it was a USA Today article, it said, Something to the effect of COVID-19 spreads up to 26 feet in, you know, sneezing in droplets. But if you actually read the article, the scientist who conducted the study said that they could not detect COVID-19 in the droplets. All they were able to detect was that when you sneezed in the right environment, it spread up to 26 feet. So that brings into question two things. One, exactly what you just said. The headline is useless, and if you read the actual study or the article, it says something entirely different. Most people don't read that. And the other thing is, if they say you have to wear a mask unless you can social distance, and if you're social distancing, you're about six feet away, right? Well, if you're six feet away and you're social distancing, but the virus can spread 26 feet, then shouldn't you have to wear a mask even if you are social distancing? None of this stuff makes sense. Yeah, well, there's all sorts of uh, contradictions, right? It's like you can uh, contract this illness at a small locally owned business, but not at a big box store. Yeah, or it's amazing. You, you can you can contract the illness by uh, protesting against lockdown and house arrest, but not against protesting racial injustice. Yeah. So you know th these are just clues that uh, <laughs> there actually is no science behind these recommendations. And a, a more clear cut example is if you go on the CDC website, they have an article they're recommending the use of masks and they have a reference section. But if you examine the articles in the reference, not one of them provides evidence that masks are beneficial. Right. And if you if you look at the British Medical Journal or JAMA, there are two particular studies, very specific studies that talk about masks being not only useless in the settings that we're using them in, but actually potentially 
dangerous. And if anybody would like to see those, they're on our website, but I can also send you a whole uh, uh, stack of documents through email if you're interested in seeing that or the chemicals that are being used commonly to supposedly kill the virus. I have that information as well. But I just wanted to mention that. Continue, if you will, Andy. Yeah, no, these are all good issues. And I want to actually guide uh, you and your viewers, if you're not familiar, to uh, Professor Ioannidis' article um, from PLOS 1. Um, and this, I think, is, I want to say 2010 or 2014, but it's been around for a few years. But essentially what this is an article that is one of the most highly cited articles in all of scientific papers at present. And what he concluded was that more than half of all published scientific findings are actually false. <laughs> no so, surprise. <laughs> so there's a, essentially a crisis in science um, that has been widely recognized, except no one acknowledges it on a case-by-case -case basis. They only talk about the whole of science is in crisis, but they are unwilling to look at specific things. Like if you look at these SARS-CoV-2 papers, you see that they fit into that category of that the findings are false because they have not shown that they have identified a virus. What's the, and, what's the headline to that article so I can look it up and get it out there while you're talking? I, I think it's something like half of all scientific uh, findings are false. But uh, if you can't find it, I, I have it. I can definitely get it to you. I think, uh, yeah, why most published research findings are false. That's the one that there comes you go. up. Yeah. That's yeah. the one. Got it. I've got it linked up on the website now, www.thesecretteachings.info. And, and also, Jack, I know you remember this. Remember uh, James McCanny, the independent scientist we've had on? Yes. Like three, He's awesome. Yeah, three years ago, he was, I think, referring to this article on the show and was talking about how most of it's just fake. It's all false. So anyway, just something I remember you and I talked about. But anyway, uh, Andy, if you'd continue on what you were saying. Yeah. So, um, you know, so it's important to have skepticism when you look at this and it's important to read the details because there are so many inconsistencies. So I wanted to answer your question about the PCR test. And I think there are two different ways to look at this. So the first way which you brought up is essentially let's look at the limitations of the procedure itself. And Carrie Mullis did say, uh, caution that it should not be used for diagnostic purposes of an infectious disease. And the reason for that is because what PCR is, it's a way to amplify an extremely tiny amount of genetic material, um, but only generally a small piece of genetic material. And what happens is, is that you have to be looking for a certain sequence of genetic material. So you have to already have an hypothesis of what you're looking for. And you develop specific probes that essentially is like the starting template for a process of duplication to occur or amplification. So like, let's say that, you know, for example, you had, uh, you know, a stack of uh, a half a million paper clips of different sizes and colors and you know you were looking for ones that were this a small size that were blue and so you'd have like a matching uh color that would somehow bind to a blue one and out of all the others it would only bind to blue and then it would turn that paper clip into two paper clips and then you add another special probe that binds only blue ones and it turns two into four the next cycle and you keep doing this until there's enough blue paper clips that you can look at the pile and pick them out. 
So now you can find them and show that they're there and you could you could further analyze the paper clips, you could measure their size and uh, such like that. And so it's a way to have a hypothesis to be looking for something that's present in tiny, tiny quantities and pick it out of a big, messy mix of other stuff uh, by amplifying it. Um, so this is uh, essentially the procedure. Now, if you're going to use it to look for, let's say, the genetic material of a virus, it's important to recognize, one, it doesn't find a virus at all. All it can um, amplify is a piece of genetic material. So you have to know where that genetic material that you're looking for comes from first. Um, and that's the other area that I want to talk about the PCR, because it's never been identified where this genetic material comes from that they're testing for. So then um, what they tell us is if we have a, an infection from a virus, that, that means the virus has produced millions and millions and millions of copies, and there are tons of virus particles there, so there should be tons of genetic material. So why should we have to amplify it if there's a ton of it there? So this is kind of a problem. And then the nature of the test is that there's not a positive or negative result, like a positive or negative result would mean like present or absent of something. But this is not how this test works. It's a quantitative test. So you know because it doubles each cycle, and then after so many cycles, you can count up the numbers uh, of when you can when it's enough to see it. Essentially, that's what they determine. So when is it enough cycles that you've amplified it enough that we can say that it's there? And that's very subjective. Um, and it depends on how much you started with. Um, but you have to create a cutoff point. So it's like, it's there, it's there, it's there the whole time. And you're saying, well, when, you know, what is enough to say it's a positive test or what's too little to say it's a negative test. And that's completely subjective. And it's not correlated to anything um, in this case because they never did a test where they actually showed the presence of a virus. Um, so like if you wanted to make this test even somewhat reasonable, you would have to compare it with a gold standard where you um, show that you have like, let's say, 100 or 1,000 patients who are sick. And from each of and every one of those patients, you isolate and purify a virus particle right out of their lung fluid, and you can identify that with a, a chemical test that you've already validated that shows that, or under a microscope, and it looks the same in every case, and then it has the same marker in every case. And then you do the PCR test with a predefined protocol, so you're going to say, well, it's going to be positive if it's detectable after 20 cycles. And then you compare that results to the presence of the virus, and then you can calculate an error rate and other things like false positive, false negative rate, and positive predictive value, and all these things they teach us how to calculate in medical school. But um, that's never been done because there's never been an isolated virus um, that's been an intact particle that they could derive anything from or use as a comparison test. Um, when they normally do this, they call it a gold standard. Uh, you compare the new test, which is a, for a surrogate marker or indirect test, and you compare that to the gold standard, which shows the actual thing, and then you calculate the error rate. But this has never been done and, at all and, for COVID. And, Andy, one okay. thing I, I want to go through a quick rapid fire with you. We've got like four minutes. Just if you can answer as quickly as possible to the best sure. of your ability, 
What exactly is the immune system? Well, it's not an army that protects us from invaders. It's a kind of logistics uh, support and organization system that it, it does respond to foreign substances that enter our body, but it also manages uh, toxins and other processes of healing uh, around our body. It brings resources around where they're needed um, and removes toxins when possible. How important is hygiene to overall health, and did hygiene play a contributing factor to the decline of certain diseases in the 20th century? Uh, yeah, well, hygiene in terms of uh, not having uh, sewage in the street or sharing uh, a toilet with a thousand other people um, has been very important. Uh, not eating after you touch dead animals or dead flesh. Um, but hygiene in terms of using uh, chemicals that kill all bacteria like hand sanitizers and things like that has not been shown to uh, result in any benefit. And the last one, real quick, supplements. Your opinion on that, yes or no? Is it beneficial sometimes? And I think that also filters into another question. What can we do to be healthy if you can sum that up in like less than a minute? Well, supplements are often used as a substitute for pharmaceuticals, and you're not going to just like take the right supplements and heal uh, an illness. It's more complicated than that. But of course, there are a role for supplements. I generally uh, talk about the things that are most natural um, and often not even in a pill form or other manufactured form. Um, what it takes to maintain health is um, healthy relationships, uh, clean food, enough water, clean water, uh, minimize exposure to toxins, do some ongoing cleansing, uh, get out in the sun and move your body. So basically not staying indoors under lockdown, not social distancing, not wearing a mask, and not using toxic chemicals to protect yourself from a virus that hasn't been identified or isolated. Yes, all those things would uh, degrade and adversely affect your health. <laughs> Jack, if you've got one question, yep. really quick, and then Andy, if you can left. answer it just as quick, please. Uh, Andy, what are your thoughts on Dr. Judy Mikovits, uh commentary? I'm guessing you're familiar with her work. She seems well-intended, but it seems that she believes in the germ theory. And I saw, I believe it was a recent uh, video that she is claiming that the COVID vaccine will kill approximately 50 million Americans. Are you familiar with her and what are your general thoughts about her and her work? Yes. Well, I was on a, a roundtable discussion with her. I think uh, you might be interested in seeing our contrasting views. Uh, Dr. Mikovits did agree with me uh, fully uh, that uh, there's no virus that's been isolated or shown to cause COVID-19. So we do agree about that. And um, we also agree that the upcoming vaccine will be responsible for a lot of um, adverse effects and probably deaths. I don't know how she estimated a particular number, but um, I expect uh, also that it could be uh, quite significant. All right, Andy Kaufman, our guest this evening. Thank you so much for joining us, Andy. And Jack, thank you for joining us as well on the show tonight. You're welcome. Great talking with you, Dr. Kaufman. Keep up the great work. Oh, thank you so much. It was uh, really a pleasure to be here. Yeah, Jack and myself, we're behind you in spirit, and we really appreciate what you do and taking the time to talk with us and our audience tonight here on The Secret Teachings. Right now, on The Fringe FM, five nights a week, Monday through Friday, another show airing immediately after. If you'd like to get access to every single show, you can do that by subscribing on the website. It's only $35 for a whole year. 
that get you access to every show, great guests, timeless subjects, and you get a free copy of one of my books, which means that for $35, you get a one-year subscription and you could get the brand new copy of my book, Food Philosophy, which has a new introduction by Don Lester and David Parker, authors of What Really Makes You Ill. They were kind enough to write that for me. And it supports the show, it supports the network, and it supports you. Stay safe, stay informed, and we'll talk to you on the next broadcast. rdgable at yahoo.com. Send us an email, stay in contact, rdgable at yahoo.com, facebook.com forward slash the secret teachings.